Hello and welcome to Scopy Radio. My name is Daniel Johansson. And I'm Maureen Smith. And we are joined with Joshua Lewis Smith. <laughs> Yo! And we have a guest QIOer in Miss Lily Guerrero. Hey! How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Good. This is the... So, this is... Um, our state of being is second episode yeah. giggles, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. we just... Earlier today, we talked to... Heather from Pie Pie My Darling, and it was an awesome conversation, and it was the first time that we were preachy vegans ever, which is impressive. And I would say that we prefaced it with being shitty to vegans, and then we're preachy. <laughs> and then we were preachy. Which, you but know. But I feel like, what is veganism without being a little preachy? Yeah. Right? And also self-hate and self-loathing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so that was a thing. If you haven't heard that episode, definitely check it out. If you're like, I love meat and I'll never give it up. Don't listen to that episode. It never happened. Well, no, You're no, no, fine. no. But, counterpoint, cake is great. Cake is great. Yeah, no, cake see, I love meat and won't give it up, but I'm excited to listen to this, and I like vegan food, and you know this. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. No, we do We do bemoan the factory farm industry mm-hmm. a little. Reasonable. Yeah. Because it's gross. Yes. But then we talk about cake and, like, small business ownership mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Everyone loves those things. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, so before we get anything, I gotta do some housekeeping because Lily's here, and we gave a a legitimate. We're gonna make everybody stop and listen to Gasolina. Which, if you haven't yet, what <laughs> wait, are you doing? Wait, hold Let's on. Let's take a second. Go listen, Gasolina. And we're back. All and right. We're back. Great. <laughs> and it was Lily that was like. Uh, what you're thinking about, we should were, we it was coming... Should we put a link to Gasolina on the Scopy page? Do you think we should put a, a link? I think anytime you can expose people to music they can shake their ass to, it's a, that's a good time. I so fucking, that's a yes. I <laughs> fucking love Gasolina. That was like the soundtrack to my, like, sophomore year of high school, yeah. and I'm like, I love it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, anyway, I'm gonna put uh, so at, post our, um, <laughs> our weird discussion about Hamilton uh Lily wrote in and she was like the reason why you think it's white is because it's actually based in reggaeton and I was like oh I'd never thought of that before and so then she was like Gasolina check it out I mean what it's like the most basic like yeah like right. that's like reggaeton yeah. 101 exactly yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. baby's first reggaeton exactly <laughs> like that's the song when I bring my friends to like Cibone, which is this really great Cuban restaurant in Logan Square, they have mm-hmm. they have live music or they have a DJ on the weekends and like everyone just dances, whatever. And like that's the one song where if the DJ plays it, all the white girls go. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Always, I when I grew Real up, when talk, I, if I were there, I would have Maureen. Maureen's yeah. that white girl. Mm-hmm. I own it though. Yeah, you know. When I lived in Florida, the other song that would and it's not reggaeton, but Suavemente. Uh huh. I know all the words, and like not all the words, but just that beginning lick. Suavemente. Besame. Um, Yeah. And it it like stopped a party in its tracks anytime it came on. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Um, counterpoint, (laughs) not counterpoint, but like, (laughs) like flash to my childhood. The showstopper was Eminem's "Lose Yourself." (laughs) I also know that one. Um, I was re- for me it was more like uh, Foolish Games by Jewel. <laughs> <laughs> so we all had different childhood experiences. Yeah. It's great. 
No, but in like all honesty, it was definitely anything by the Spice Girls. Oh yeah. I mean, like as far as like parties. Wait, which then, one were you? Which Spice Girl? Yeah. I was ginger or posh. Me too. I was. On the I, was day. Oh, I loved ginger. I, me and my friends fought to be ginger, and I never got to be ginger. But I think in my life I'm ginger. I really yeah. liked sporty. Oddly enough, since I'm not very sporty, <laughs> I she was so, a fave. So I so in my in my outward persona, I was like, I want to be ginger, but like my <laughs> my like you know tiny chubby. Eight-year-old Maureen very badly wanted to be Baby Spice. Uh huh. Because she was like blonde and like very petite and like very right. cute, and I was like, she is everything and I'm not. I think even when I was ten, I knew that they wanted me to like Baby Spice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think Posh is the sexy one. Like I think Baby's the cute one. You, I feel like you grow into Posh uh, as uh. as the as the. Like, baby is the one that they male. give you when you turn 16 and get your license, and then Posh also, is like when you for, buy your for own For a society yeah. that's as into gross infantilism as we are, I feel like Baby Spice is where it's like, ooh, daddy. You know, Ew. like, yeah. that that's is... That's a big thing right now, ew, though. Ew, porn voice. Oh, uh, why is, why is incest so in vogue right now? Like, I, <laughs> like, I don't... Why is that? Well, like, no, man. No, I mean, let's... I mean... Let's just call it out. If you go to Pornhub's, like, homepage, mm-hmm. it is all, like, you know, this guy I sleep fun. with my sister. I, I sleep with my stepsister. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, that's gay porn, too. It's a yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's all over. All over everywhere. Ugh. I don't know. Why? I, I, I but also, know. we just, like, now call a subset of men daddies. So you're, like, oh, I'm looking for a daddy. So there's, like, it's really... <sighs> the fetish of virginity and all of that, too. Oh, of course. Yeah. Just, yeah. And I also don't mean to sound like a, like, um, vanilla, like, shamey person. <laughs> if that's what you're into, like, by all means. Yeah, I just, just make sure she's legal. Yeah. That's the thing. Also, don't fuck your sister. Or your stepdaughter. Bold stance, but... <laughs> Coming down hard. Yeah. On fucking yeah. your sister. Maureen, <laughs> well, Maureen come down, come, comes down hard on sister fucking. I guess that's... <laughs> I guess that's the thing, is there's so many kinks, like, there's so many flavors out there, like... Do we gotta do the one that's like? I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm not. Si- I don't want to sit here and like when bemoan is it, incest. Yeah. When is it morally corrupt? When is a kink morally corrupt? Right. I'm gonna call it at incest. I think that's that's my but personal. If line. it's two consenting adults. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, you so know, upsetting. I will give that. I will it's, say like I'm not gonna it's like, like flowers in the attic shit. Or <laughs> <laughs> they're both into it. Or I Game of Thrones. Uh, what if you were separated at birth and you have no emotional ties to each other? Yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, like, it's not... Alright, well, like, let's say that you found out that your boyfriend was your brother. Hey, Jake. Hey, Jake. <laughs> Jake. Shout out, Jake. Let's, let's pretend that Jake, you find out tonight that Jake is your brother. Well, that's gonna be a problem. But also, you know, I feel like the reason why we're not into incest is because for procreation purposes, like that's just not gonna work right, out. So we're, yeah. we're we're programmed to not like that because it's going to yeah, be genetically, it's not gonna it's not gonna work out. But Jake and I don't plan on being parents ever. So then, is that okay? Yeah, that was gonna be my next question. Is Wow, what an interesting turn this cute... We have, like, we have, like, things on the docket to discuss. And we are just talking about incest And we are delving into incest. But, you know what? That's the nature of QIO. It's true. I... So, 
I was going to, I was going to bring up gay relationships actually where parenting is not an, where biological parenting is not an option. Oh. Yeah. yeah. More or less. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, the act of sex yes. will not create a child. Yes. Create a child. So in that instance, like in a, in a reality where sex does not create children, is it then okay to fuck a sibling? So, here's my stance on this. Here's my stance. I don't know. Everyone, anyone should be able to do what do what you're gonna do, just as long as you're not like killing anybody. Like I, fine. I just should be able to go. This is all right. This is getting weird. I should like I should be able to go to Pornhub and not be like. <laughs> Fuck your sister. Like, is that is that so much to ask? Is that a bold stance? You know, actually, I think it is. Because that would be, like, some bigoted whatever going to Pornhub and being like, I shouldn't have to go to Pornhub and see dicks everywhere. Yeah. Well, because I think that in, in the sex industry and in the sex world, all I, I think that that is the one industry and that the one realm where, like, nothing's taboo. And so you kind of have to, like, deal with it. Yeah, I guess. I, I bet know. there's a Bible verse somewhere that it's like, don't <laughs> fuck your sister, which, like, I'm a bad Catholic and, like, don't... We don't memorize Bible verses, so I wouldn't know. What a know segue, Lily Girl. If it's in there. Oh, what Being a segue. Catholic. What a segue. Oh, yeah. Hey, girl. So, um, the first docket for our QIO Jesus conversation... Jesus Christ, we're nine minutes... We're so I know, we're nine minutes in. So, and I <laughs> promise this was only going to be ten minutes, because um, we have other great, fun stuff to talk about. Um, is I saw a post in the new new forum for classical singers, and I try really hard to not pay attention to the new new forum for classical singers because, <laughs> like, fifty percent of the time it's a dumpster fire. I'm always on there. I'm commenting on every post every yeah. time. You commented on my <laughs> every uh, single on, time on a post that my high school voice teacher po- uh, posted. Did I really? Yeah. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. Anyway, so someone posted in it saying, if you have any musician friends who support the taxation of churches, kindly explain to them that paid musicians will probably be cut from the budget. Can we all harmonize? Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Cool. We're keeping that. Yeah. Um, well, no, and I, I think it's I think it's interesting because. Guess what uh, denominations that guy falls into? Mm. White, straight, and male. Mm. Oh, I thought you were going to tell me he's evangelical. Not that I hate no, evangelicals, he's a but yeah. they're just... Yeah. Well, and so it, it like... <laughs> they exist. Brings up this idea of, like, taxation as a concept. Yes. I thought it was really interesting also talking about... The thing for me is, like, if you're going to sit there and be like, well, uh, we shouldn't tax churches because, like, then they're just going to not pay their singers. It's like, well... That's fucked up. It's selfish. On a, on a moral level. Like, it's the same way it's like, was it Papa John's dude that was like, if you're going to tax my business more, I'm going to not hire as many people. Like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to have the I'm gonna incentive. Have to, I'm going to have to mm-hmm. cut my employees' pay. Jimmy John's yeah. was like that, too. Yes. Really? And it's, mm-hmm. oh. and it's this, like... Luckily, and I, I can't eat anything there. Yeah. Built-in boycott. <laughs> it's this, like, Reaganomics idea of, like... Yeah, a little bit. 
Maureen is giving me a weird face. Because, like, and I promised I wasn't going to go too far into talking about neoliberalism. And I'm not going to. I'm just going to mention it one time. Just going to mention it one time. Where it's just this idea of, like, we're so against the idea of taxation. Because, like, free market and free market, free market, free market. And it's like, yeah, in its, in its core, like, the idea of a free market is really important. But, like, when you're talking about a free market for goddamn Wells Fargo, does Wells Fargo really need more power? Do they? No. Yeah, I think they need more power. <laughs> no, right. they don't need more power. I think that the country, the world, should just be a couple like giant city-state nation things mm-hmm. run by the different banks. So Absolutely. we could live in Wells Fargo land. Yeah. yeah. Well, I love. I want to live in Bank of America Topia personally, because oh. you can um, deposit a check directly into their ATMs. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'd do J.P. Morgan, and the president would be Morgan Freeman. Oh. oh, I didn't know that was on the table, and now I'm intrigued. And he would just follow behind you and narrate your life. <gasps> yes, yeah, That'd be really good. Well, so anyway, the thing that I thought was really interesting about it too was then someone else went on to be like, "Well, if we tax churches, then they're probably going to come for all the nonprofits." And it's like, first off, nonprofits income are already taxed, so you're just wrong right off the bat. And um, on top of that, if we had more nonprofits uh, are taxed. Their income. Well, they, and they are also different tax codes than churches. I think yeah. that, it's a different I, status. I, yeah, they basically all tax exempt organizations, except for churches and charitable organizations, have to reapply Every and year. prove and prove and their tax ex- exactly. exempt status. Yeah, I think that churches are by definition ruled out from that requirement they are as long as they as long as like if an auditor shows up and they can prove that they are a house of worship yeah as long as they can prove that they are a house of worship um, and so that's the thing right is that if you're if all of your income is going towards charitable goods then your all of your all of your output all of your expenses would then be tax exempt and that is kind of the nature of making the uh, income of but if you're a church like a, the Westboro Baptist Church and your funds are going towards political means and should that be tax hate. exempt mm-hmm. yeah or even a church like Scientology that was apparently created it's, purely to make money. Absolutely. Yep. Well, exactly. And so in reading this in in reading this like thread on the on the new new classical new new form for classical singers, I was interested in getting the actual like verbiage and history behind why churches are taxed right. or tax exempt in the first place. So I found an article on the Rutgers Journal of Law and Religion, um, and I'm going to read a little excerpt from that just because I feel like we kind of need a baseline of like why exactly churches are tax exempt because I think it's I think it's valuable context. So here we go. Most scholars bemoan their inability to pinpoint an exact date or source for a government's exemption, exempting of a religious or charitable institution from taxation. Scholarship indicates a long tradition of such, of such exemptions. The ancient worlds of Egypt, Samaria, Babylon, and Persia forgave priests and temples their taxes. Among other favors, 
Constantine bestowed tax-exempt status on churches, and while subsequent rulers revoked certain privileges, tax exemption remained. Despite, it, th despite this history, the American tradition of tax exemption for religious institution most directly grew out of its parent-child relationship with England and the English method of exempting charitable organizations from taxation. Drawing on the charitable activities in which religious institution institutions often participate, the English law of equity exempted those inst institutions from taxation. The Statute of Charitable Uses, enacted in 1601, failed to reference religion and churches, but many religious activities, such as that of providing relief to the sick and elderly, fell within its definition of charity. Yeah. So, that is pretty, that is why in, you know, the American constitutional taxation law, churches are exempt from taxes, is that they are umbrellaed under charitable organizations. Yeah. Right, and the main reason we're bringing all this up right now is that there is, uh, in, with progressives, a, a big conversation happening about maybe we should be taxing them. And I don't think anything's going to happen given the fact that not the House, the Senate, the executive branch, and to some extent you could even say the judicial branch is entirely run by fascists. Especially with this, and with this new religious freedom executive order. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but I think it is a conversation worth having. Exactly. Yes. So I guess what are Josh and Lily, what are your thoughts on this topic? Well, I, you had mentioned before, Lynn, <laughs> correct me if I misinterpreted, but why not just tax them and then have their charitable things be deductions like everybody else? I, I personally feel that because that's kind of the way that you would keep accountable to some right. extent. And I right. think that's fair. And I think all or other organizations have to do that. And it wouldn't be that hard to prove. And I would even be there for um, expanding on what we'd be, what we would be considered tax exemption. Because it's amazing that the people that hate the idea of taxes the most are also the ones that nickel and dime what can be considered tax exempt mm -hmm. in in the sense of for like the lower classes i mean because like for us if we were for example let's say you live in an apartment and you teach voice in it and you want to write off your apart your rent as a tax because you teach voice in your uh uh in your apartment and you w want that to be tax exempt the rules in which you make that happen are extremely strict yes uh, you have to send the irs a very specific and you know that it wasn't a bernie sanders type that or or even mm, i don't know i mean hillary clinton maybe would i don't know i'm not gonna sit here and like fig, like no. min minutely figure a out someone's policy political mind right Let's is not say. the one that's gonna be like well you know who we really need to fuck over is the uh artist who's piecing together their income by like taking on pupils you know who's only, educating me sorry no go ahead oh the only problem i see with that is if you're a church and you're trying to do your deductions and with things like that they could deduct their entire building and their heating costs and all of the things that it takes just to run mm -hmm. yes and then at the end of the day theoretically if you're a church and you really are a charitable nonprofit, the way you say you are Everything you do should be a deduction. Yeah. So then wouldn't we just cut out the middleman and not make them pay taxes at all? 
Well, the thing is, though, that some churches <laughs> are not that way. Would yeah. not go through those steps, and yeah. they'd be like, "Fine, we just have to pay taxes." And it also comes down to the the concept of which separation of church and state, right? Mm-hmm. And it's and I think it would the thing is that potentially making churches claim all of their deductibles is that um, it or, ends up becoming or prove a, prove that they are actually doing charitable. charity, yeah. It's an it, accountability thing, which is great. Yeah, and it's a check. It's a check for balance. Yes. Like it's which is exactly what And well, I think that since we're seeing this I mean, churches are absolutely playing a big part in American politics right now as far exactly. as the right goes. In the last what, twenty years, thirty years, they've really changed the face of the Republican Party. Absolutely. E- even even more recent than that in the last ten years and with the um, Tea Party. Uh, that they have enough financial power and manpower to create lobbying forces that really control political movements. And a lot of that does come from money. And I think if that's clearly something that should be taxed because mm-hmm. there are, you know, we're, we're, people are like, well, what about the separation of church and state? Well, clearly it's not being separated. So Absolutely. let's yeah. take that money. No, the church, the church right. is very quickly becoming the fourth branch, branch of government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as of right now, there is not a check on their power. Yep. And so I think that taxation on those churches and, and forcing them to prove their charitable status would be a check because it would vastly, vastly limit the financial power that they hold. Yeah, and if you, white, straight, douchebag on the internet, uh, want to start talking about how all musicians need to stand up and claim that churches shouldn't be able to pay taxes, why aren't we talking about the fact that, like, churches extremely rely on their musicians like it's it's a it's deeply inherent in the history of the church and why would you not then go instead of being like well we really should allow them to continue their tax exempt status what about uh forming a union for singers what about making sure that we're we're working for workers rights as singers because in in the reality of it we are workers i mean sure there are singers there that are like doing it for for their beliefs and there's nothing wrong with that Mm -hmm. but if you are a trained singer you have degrees in it, you paid money to do it, and you are there because you are trying to, to enrich the musical experience of that church. You have every right to, to get paid, and if that church is not going to pay you fairly and is going to like espouse their beliefs of, of neoliberal tax exemption, then fuck them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um... Normally, I think that we would probably want to devote an entire episode to this because there is so much to discuss. However, we, we, should, move we should move on. But I would like to say that if you have thoughts on this, yes. if anything, we love getting listener mail. So send us an email at scopymag at gmail.com. We want to hear your thoughts on it because it's a fascinating discussion. Yeah, and then we can talk about this some more. Absolutely. Absolutely. But on the note of listener mail, we brought Lily on for a very specific reason. And yeah, so we dive in. In one of our episodes last week, we got onto the topic of cultural appropriation. And it was a room of white people talking about cultural appropriation. Um, And, you know, it 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 had points to it. um, But you wrote in. post that episode and so i would love to and you wrote in and you were like i have thoughts and we had an email conversation and then we had a fit like a group facebook message discussion about it um so i would love it if you wouldn't mind uh if you just like talked about 
your stance on all of this, and then we can get into the discussion. But I want to, like, formally give you the floor. Yeah, well, it was a little bit exciting for me when you wrote back and you didn't agree with me, because <laughs> I was like, oh my god, for once I don't agree with, like, the face of Scappy, like, yeah. Scappy Mac. <laughs> this is great. So, the conversation had been about um, Fringe Opera's uh, production of Lucrezia, and whether or not um, William Bolcom writing in his Arzuela style was cultural appropriation. Okay. And I wrote in and I said, well, I think that we need to make sure that we distinguish between cultural appropriation and exoticism, Um, also sometimes called Orientalism in music, but that's like a very specific, like that's a very narrow, um, whatever, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean. Um, And so, so I was saying it's not cultural appropriation and Dan was saying all, all exoticism is cultural appropriation. And so that was really exciting that we yeah. didn't agree for one. <laughs> well, and I, I love... So I'm going to, like, sidestep here for a second. I am a part of a Democratic Socialists Alliance, or Association's, like, inner group thing. And um, I got into another disagreement with someone about something. But I love getting in disagreements with progressive people because we end up, like, having fantastic conversations. Oh, yeah. And I think that that's entirely what this was. And, like, I'm, I love allowing that because I think the only thing that can happen is a better understanding of everyone's perspective sure. when we allow the space to be like, let's, let's pick apart a little bit and really try and figure out oh, the yeah. distinctions. Oh yeah. Um, and so I have, I have a little bit of like a, what if it was modern day, like kind of bring it mm-hmm. in. So yeah. just to put it in our own terms to see, see what you think about it. So I was thinking about it as, um, so bear with me here. So I'm thinking opera is a Western art form, right? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when we're talking about exoticism, my definition of exoticism is a composer takes a, a culture or a tradition that is not theirs and writes about it, doesn't claim to be of it, just this is my outsider's perspective of what this is. So if we're looking at that composer, is he... Is he a part of the 21st century white savior complex where it's like, oh, look at this culture and no one's writing about it. So I'm going to swoop in and save the day and make sure everyone knows about this awesome thing and look, mm-hmm. look what a good person I am. Or is he an ally of the minority and saying, hey, a lot of these countries, they have no, they have no place right now in, Western, in this Western art form. No one's writing about them. No one is celebrating their heritage or their culture. I'm an ally with a platform. I'm well-established. I'm a composer that people know and respect. What if I was a good ally, went to them, asked them what their story is, what people, what they want other people to know about them, and what if I use my platform to, to, to talk about them and to have their story told? Yeah. Then are they a bad guy or are they not a bad guy? So I agree with you. And this is something that we, Maureen and I, were talking about today more. Because Joachim, Joachim Lewis, also good, uh, my good friend, um, and I were talking more about it too. And, and he's actually also Asian, so that was an interesting thought process. But the thing that I've, I feel is, first off, I agree with you, um, conceptually. but And I, I would then raise you that... If you have a composer like the person that we we got into is Puccini because sure. he is the like exoticism textbook yeah. guy. Um, I would say that 
when you take something like Madame Butterfly, for example, mm-hmm. or you take something like Turandot, for example, which is extremely reliant on Asian cultures, you can, I think you can be an ally and write that. But I would almost say that when you write it, it is almost then a gift to that culture. Sure. And, um, and I think to then capitalize on that, what you've then created is inherently appropriative to then take it and perform it at the Met with white singers and done in a way that is entirely cultural theft and and not entirely representative of I mean if you have a, a white person playing Chocho San can she inherently can she actually in uh, act the like the nuances of both the culture of suicide the deep Japanese culture of suicide and the um, the dias- the almost diasporic uh, feeling of having Americans rip the uh, her Asian culture from her culture country while she lived there and so that's kind of and I also think that like clearly I'm I'm coming at it from the hard left like the hard line all exoticism has to be appropriation but I think I have to do that. As the white straight male in the room, like I, I like, and and this and this, I almost would say falls into like a potential white savior complex kind of thing because, mm-hmm. but I, I just know for for me that is like the comfortable place to be, and I think if, I th- I think if there is a uh, Asian director casting Butterfly and they cast a white singer to do it. Let's have that conversation. I think that is a conversation there's to a, have. There's a, another conversation here, though, I think that's important to have. And sure. it's still that... So we're talking about finding someone to play... To take the, the authenticity of this role, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not written by an Asian person. So you're looking for authenticity in somewhere where there's inherently not going to be any. Right. Which And, and that doesn't... And that doesn't mean that I'm going to then say, so let's just have carte blanche and let white people play every role that's not what i'm saying yeah but i am saying that it's i mean it's like poor game best it wasn't it was written for black performers but by white people so right. it's never going to really authentically tell that story and right. we're always like well these, you know it, it which in its own way is kind of a white awfulness mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah well i would love to talk about gershwin a little bit if that's okay because i um we talked about it on the show actually with Tracy Davis, who is one of the founders of the Musical Activists of Chicago. Excuse me, sorry. I ate a beer. I'm like gassy. It's gross. Um, we're talking about um, racism in opera, and and the thing that's interesting about it from a uh, an audience perspective is um, you have so many black operas that are amazing, like Tremonisha and. Um, Oh god, I'm blanking now. But and then you have black opera companies like South Shore Opera Company and, and things like that. That you mm-hmm. uh, we're we're not seeing those vaulted, right? And instead, every black singer has to feel like they have to vault Porgy and Bess. When in reality, Porgy and Bess, in a lot of its parts and pieces, is very stereotypical of black culture. I mean, you most of the most of the black men in them are like aggressively like. Um, well, misogynistic. I would, I would say it's a caricature of what white people think black people are, yes. and and it, even down to the way that they wrote the libretto. It's like I got plenty of nothing, and nothing's yeah, plenty like, well, for me. Well, you know, black people are dumb, so we gotta write the libretto. Exactly, that way. and it's yeah. like what? And and the other thing too with that is you look at Gershwin, who his history is working with Blue Monday, which yeah, is a yeah, minstrel yeah. show. Yeah, we, and like minstrel shows are inherently 
extremely racist. And so it's not then so then Porgy and Vest is sure like maybe it is more more culturally sensitive, but it's still complicit. And you can in the problem of appropriation. Add another layer because it comes from the Tin Pan Alley school of writing, which was completely appropriative of <laughs> the black music. Mm-hmm. So we have layer upon layer here. Well, yeah. and I think that, and and to, I think that his heart was in the right place in saying that only black performers oh, could perform. Yes, but, yes, yes. But that goes along the same line. A culture that I can speak to, which is the body positive movement. Okay. There, we had a conversation with Jesse Oliver where there is a play, the title of which is escaping me, where the main female role is a fat woman, and fat female actresses fight tooth and nail for that play to be performed. However, that character is a problematic character. Because that character, pretty much for the entire play, fights tooth and nail to be loved and adored by a thin society. She falls in love with a thin man, and then at the end of the play, the thin man goes with the thin woman, and she goes, well, I guess I'm just fat then. Mm. And fat actresses fight for that role, Mm -hmm. and it's horrible. You're fighting to play the fat best friend, and even in a play, it's I think it's called like Pig Face or something like that. And it's like, why are disenfranchised populations fighting so hard to lift up pieces of art that are unkind to them and paint them in a mm-hmm. horrible light? Mm-hmm. And why aren't these populations... You know, why aren't we lifting up... I'm not going to blame disenfranchised populations for not lifting up pieces of art that are better for them. But why aren't pieces of art that are more representative of the actual experiences of these people Mm -hmm. being lifted up? Why are we we extolling the virtues of... I well, wish I, I wish I could remember the name of this play, but I'm going to call it Pig Face, and I know it's wrong. Well, but listen, check the Jesse Oliver episode, right? She mentions. It I think it. that we talked about it off off, off mic. Yeah. Well, here's the thing: is that actually um, sets up my next thought really well, which is that the thing is that it really comes down to the problem we have with mainstream arts organizations right now, not like basically working so hard to create a canon that like you then have the token black opera and the token and theater organizations being like, well, we have the token one where we can cast a fat person in or like, and like hairspray is another good example of that. Although hairspray's story is much more. Yeah. I will, I will say that. Well, but yeah. their theater companies cast thin actresses. Oh, and that's unforgivable. Absolutely. Yeah. I know there was even covers on Broadway who wore fat suits. Yeah, mm-hmm. which like, I promise you that there are fifteen hundred fat actresses who would absolutely nail that role on of Broadway. Course. And like, fucking, even give anyone a chance. Give it <laughs> anyone, yeah. literally anyone. But also, theater does it better than classical music. Because theater does have then Lin Manuel. Theater does have in the Heights. I would respectfully disagree with that. No, please give it. Um, so I didn't. I didn't come to opera first. I came to musical theater, and I, you know, wanted to 
be on stage, whatever. Okay. And I loved musical theater. And I kept running into dead ends with the way I looked. You can't be Cinderella. She has to be a white blonde girl. You can't be Kunigunda. She has to be a white blonde girl. Be such a good Kunigunda. <laughs> no, and yeah. It, it was just. It. I, I was like, okay. And then the other thing too was that, you know, as a soprano, a soprano, like you're primarily cast in the ingenue roles, and those are usually the skinny little white blonde girl that the tenor falls in love with and that's not what I look like but that's what comes out of my mouth when I sing because that's the voice that I have same problem and so (laughs) there was no there was no place for me in music theater because they would look at me you know I would go audition for Bye Bye Birdie and I'd say I'm here to audition for Kim McAfee that's the voice I have and they would look at me and say "Mm, you look like Rosie though right okay well I'm not a mezzo belter you really have no imagination that Kim McAfee can't look like me so it, it wasn't a place for me. And so that's when I thought, okay, well, opera is at least a little bit more forgiving, which that gets me like on another completely different yeah. soapbox of, um, I am fortunate enough to have light skin privilege and the minority with that, which in I live, um, I mean, th- that kind of stuff you- happens even in like in, in black culture in yeah. like, um, Middle Eastern culture, like they have whitening creams and everything. And so when I first started getting into opera, I had people telling me like, okay, you're going to need to lighten your skin. So like, don't go out in the sun. And if you can lighten your hair, just to be a little bit more ethnically ambiguous, because being Hispanic and like really being full throttle and like, they didn't say proud, but I was hearing being proud of your heritage is not always going to do you a a service. And so that's what I did. I didn't go out in the sun. I dyed my hair lighter. I tried to be as ethnically ambiguous as possible, but I still kept running into it. I was told you can't, you can't sing baby doll. You're, you don't look like that, but maybe, you know, maybe next season when we do Carmen, we can call you to sing Frisquita. Okay. All right, I guess that's the only thing that I can possibly do then, right? Because we have no imagination here. Because I was told that, oh, well, Jill does primarily, you know, we usually put her in a blonde wig, and that's just not going to go with your skin tone. Oh, So get a different wig. (laughs) Also, Rigoletto is a fucking, it's set in Italy. Right. How many fucking blonde, like, in, like, 1600s Italy, how many blonde ladies were running around fucking Italy? I think we just... I think we associate that virginal Jilda character with blonde, with blonde, blonde purity, the, the ivory skin mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And it's baby just, spice. Yeah, it's baby spice. And I came in looking scary. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, the thing that I was going to ask you about is, are you familiar with the like passing concept? Oh, sure. Would you mind talking about that? Oh, sure. So, and you know, it's it's interesting when, okay, so I'm sure everybody's seen the movie Selena. So yes. you know how when they're in the car and they're on the way to Monterrey and he's telling her, you know, you've got to be more American than the Americans and you got to be more Mexican than the Mexicans yeah. and no one's ever happy. That, like, that is the experience of, that's my experience and I'm sure that's the experience of many other people who, especially first, genera- first generation Americans, um, y- you, it's like, when I'm hanging out with my family or when I'm in a primarily Hispanic-dominated environment, it's like, oh, look, the, the gringa's here, like, the like little white girl, because I'm lighter-skinned and I act, act white, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
But then, you know, in, if I'm in a, an audition or something like that, then the fact that I'm morena, the fact that I have dark hair, dark skin, dark eyes, then that becomes center stage. And, and even in like, like even in Praxilla meetings, I love Praxilla, but sometimes because we don't have a high ratio of minority women yet, you often end up being the speaker for all minorities <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you guys have seen the, the new documentary uh, episodes of Dear White People. They had a movie, and now there's, no, the, I'm really there's like a, ser- a TV it, series. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm waiting to have uh, more than two days off to actually sit down and devote some time to that because yeah. it's important that within, I do it. Within, like, the first five minutes, there's this scene where this black girl is sitting in her her class at college and the professor says, now we're going to talk about the African diaspora and slavery. And does anyone in the class with possibly a connection to slavery want to discuss it and op- just open up the talk? And she's the only black girl, and everyone just turns and looks at her, and she's like, oh, God, not this again. And so that happens a lot, where yeah. you just, like, you know you're the only one in the room, and you're like, all right, not this again. Um, but, yeah, that's my two, like, white passing versus... It, it depends on the environment. And, yeah. And, and when you're told things by your teachers, like, oh, make sure your, light, your skin mm-hmm. is light enough, your hair is light enough, to be white passing. That's what they're telling you, but they won't say it explicitly. Well, and we talked about it, that concept generally a little bit, too, with Brendan Nwan, Brent, uh, your cousin Brendan, Brendan, Brendan Nwanquo, yeah. because he is half white and half black. And so you're, you end up riding this middle ground where you act too white for, for, um, for your black part of the family and you act too black for your white part of the family. Uh-huh. I don't want to keep... Anyway. Well, Brendan's situation is a little bit unique because um, he spent the first part of his life in Nigeria. Right. Living with his father's family, um, like speaking that language, living in that culture, and not not really dealing with the fact that he was half white because he didn't see his mother um, until, again, until he was like 10. Or no, until no, until he was like six or seven, um, and then he came to America and didn't see his Nigerian family again until he was like eight, seventeen or eighteen. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and then he just had my side of the family, and so it wasn't even a matter of like feeling out. He felt <laughs> it was weird in that his Nigerian family was just kind of like, yeah, whatever, you're great because you're Brendan and you're here. Whereas we were like, oh, newcomer, which was shitty. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. So I'm interested. I didn't need to go into all no, of that. No, 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 no. Um, I'm interested in talking more about Puccini. Because the other thing I really want to say, and I feel like I haven't said, is um, I'm in no way saying that Puccini was not a brilliant composer. I love Puccini. I think he's a great composer. And I think, but the thing is, is I think you can go, <laughs> he's a great composer. And also, exoticism is appropriation. And I think that that's a really important, like, thing to say. Like, the same way that you can be like, I, like, I voted for Hillary Clinton. I wish she was less of a neoliberal. Like, you, you, like, you can be like, and I think that that's a really powerful thing that we need more of is, is disagreement. And of, is of being like, yes, like, generally, this is how I think. But like, if, if I could, if I had to have it, this one thing a different way, this is what I think. Because we're... We're not, 
it's decision making and figuring out what we want in life and figuring out what's great and what's not is not black and white like it's not that Puccini is the greatest composer of all time like he is a he has written some beautiful music and has uh, made a lot of different uh, storylines and plot lines and, ex and exposure to different concepts and has really represented poor low income people I think pretty well I don't know. And I think well, and a... the reason he was able to pull that off is that he was, at one point, a poor artist. Yeah. And so he was able to represent that experience right. very well. You know, Dan, I'm still going to argue that. Yeah, no, no, go Exoticism for it. is not appropriation. Because I think that the distinction... Here, Lily. The distinction <laughs> for me is that is that exoticism evokes and does not imitate. It is it is about, but not of. Okay, yeah. Um, And then I think the other thing that we're, we're not touching on that is important is the source material itself. So if you look at things like um, Madame Butterfly, for example, so we're talking about the appropriation of Japanese culture. However, the source material, it was a short story by an American who then another American, David Belasco, wrote a play about it. And then Puccini saw the play and right. thought, oh, this American play is really beautiful. I'm going to write it. And then he went to Japan, had some people teach him about what, like, what is, what is it about Japanese music that makes it sound Japanese? And that's how we got Madame Butterfly. So what about the source material? Is it, is it appropriation if the source <laughs> material wasn't Japanese? Do you want to know? I personally think yes. Uh-huh. And, and, and that's just my, that's my personal stance. And like, I, like, am I here for it? Because it's, for me, it's a... Uh, it is there is a hard line to it in that if you're writing if you're writing today right and you're a white author today and you wrote a story about black people that's cultural appropriation because you are literally profiting and selling books off of a narrative that is not your narrative i think that goes back to what lily was saying about lifting up versus co-opting so i think I, I watched this really interesting video about Disney specifically, where early, like, 90s Disney, like, if you look at Mulan, if you look at Pocahontas, there was some cultural appropriation going on. Right. And it mainly had to do with the music, in that there were, like, in Mulan, there wasn't any Chinese there, none of these songs had Chinese words, but it was stereotypically sounding Chinese music. Or vague, not even specifically Chinese, just vaguely Asian music. Mm -hmm. um, and so in that instance, it was Disney putting on a kimono to sell money. Whereas, <laughs> fast forward to Moana, right when... There, like, there's this scene specifically that they touched on where all of these were the the main, like, the the tribe in Moana is on a sh is on a ship, sailing, mm -hmm. and they're singing in a traditional Polynesian language. To a, and I think that they're singing something that's based on a f traditional folk song, and you can see the characters saying the words and singing along. Then the words are translated into English, and you look at the characters, and they are no longer singing. So those characters are not singing in that language. 
it is then the narrative taking over and describing what is going on. And so in that instance, that is described as not being culturally appropriative because it is not putting the onus on these characters that are described as other to to adapt to our understanding. Mm-hmm. It is saying these characters are singing in their own tongue, representing their own language in a way that is respectful and accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the narration takes over and describes what's happening. Sure. So I I I want to also say that the thing that gets that I am so adamant about with this conversation is when you look at American imperialism it is interventionist, it is problematic, and it's almost inherently so. And I think that, for me, even if you look at the source material, and you look at this guy that wrote the source material, went and lived in Japan, and but the, the thing is, is that we have the American mindset, and it's in the plot of Butterfly, and they make the point, like, the point is made, yes, but y- you almost get the sense when you when you finish Butterfly, for, for me, that if it's done by if it's created and finished by white people it almost puts a bow on it of we solved it Mm -hmm. and we didn't solve it because we then went on to bomb the shit out of japan with a nuclear weapon and that was the time that we used it and that was the pinnacle and we still we still have issues of um american imperialism in nation countries and it's it's we have not it's not we're not living in a post-racist um american and asian country world and and I think that 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 I think if you don't recognize that and stage a production of butterfly it it is inherently appropriative to me because you're 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 even if you're not entirely even if you're all of your prof, profits are going you're sending them straight to like a Hiroshima fund or something like you're still perpetuating the branding idea that we solved the American imperialism problem in Asian countries. And I guess that's kind of where I feel. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm giving the floor to them now. Yeah, no. (laughs) I haven't, I, okay. I have another hypothetical and I'm interested in hearing the opinion then. So with two, with two examples of exoticism that I can think of, they were given permission. So I'm thinking the first one is Aida, where Verdi was approached by the leader of Egypt. He said, yes, "Hey, we're opening up right, this. Yeah. We're opening up this opera house in Cairo. I want you to write something that celebrates our people." And he came up with Aida. The second one is um, Carmen. So this Spanish countess was like, "Hey, I have this really awesome story," and she gave it to Prosper Merime, who wrote the novella. Yeah. And then Bizet was like, "This is a bomb ass novella. Let me." bring it to the masses and write an opera about it. Is it appropriation if you're given permission? Well, so who wrote the source material of Carmen then? Prosper Merime, who was a French guy. Okay, so that's the, interesting. Yeah, but approached by a Spanish countess. countess. That's interesting. Although... Spanish countess, that brings up class. I'm, I, the thing is, you, you can, you can always go into this conversation in different ways. Here's what I'm going to say. Here's my genuine thoughts on all of this, is that I think that the issue for me, I'm sorry. You're fine. The issue for me is benefiting, <laughs> is directly benefiting over a an oppressed population. Yeah. That's for me. And I think the, the bigger crime is black and Asian stories and, and potentially Latin American and because that you get into you get into like 
oppression versus my thing about Carmen is one could argue that Spanish or not, it still was an appropriation of the Romani culture. Right. <laughs> uh, that's, that's all. That's what yeah. I want to say. Right. But, but, which is, I mean, but still, I think that it's a really interesting question that you've raised because that. Is, I think it has a lot to do with. In, I think it has a lot to do with intent. Yeah. I think that when you look at something like Aida, where it was a specific commission, it was. Was it? Is that considered a commission where? Yeah, I think it was a commission. Yeah, it was. Yeah, from yeah. from Egypt specifically. Yes. Um, it's a different thing than Gilbert and Sullivan oh, well, writing well. the Mikado. Sure. Which is that. That's <laughs> pretty racist. That is appropriation. Well, yeah. and then Dan brought up earlier a point where we should, if if it's going to be that case, we should use it to celebrate that culture, but then not like why would we t- put it at the Met with white people? So where is the place if we do have these things? Yeah. If we do have these things that celebrate specific cultures, where is their place in the canon? Well, so here's first. I'm going to preface by saying we don't live in a morally perfect world. No. So I, n- I never think we're going to achieve. <laughs> sure. What, wait a minute. We don't be. live in a morally perfect world. The thing is, the Met's going to continue staging Butterfly because it sells. But so yeah. that is a reality, and I accept that reality. And I'm I'm more just saying I want to push towards getting away from that. So that I think in a, so my realistic answer is it's going to keep happening. It's going to keep happening. We should continue to have these conversations because these conversations are where we really figure out. I think that what it, the problems are and what the solutions I think it are. goes back to what we were saying about there needing to be checks and balances in in avenues of our existence other than government. Yes. How the church needs to be checked. We need to check pieces of art that were created pre-acknowledgement of racism. Yeah. And just double check that we're, that we are perpetuating an art form worth perpetuating, mm-hmm. but doing it respectfully. Yeah. So I want to, I want to actually answer your question if that's okay. And in, in that's not um, okay. In a morally ideal world, um, I would like to see it, and I, I, like I was thinking about this earlier, it would be a thing where Butterfly is a gift to that culture, and it is that culture's decision, how it gets staged, how it gets performed, and I, I don't really know how that would work, and if it's, if it's as simple as the stage director should at least always be a, um, or the producing force, rather, should always be someone that has that experience. Yeah. I don't really know how that would work, but I, I that's kind of my thinking on it. And the idea of a white-run organization casting a white-led yes. production is an inherently problematic. I, so, <laughs> just go with me on this, because I just had, I was thinking about how this would apply, like, if, um... Uh, a straight person wrote something and gave it as a gift to the gay community. I would, I would light it on fire. <laughs> yeah. I mean that. I, I, no, it's not the same. Necessarily, but I would try to apply it in my head to what do my I mean, experiences. It, my so my relationship with cultural appropriation is mains is in the mainstream, and that has to do with white women wearing Native American clothing Coachella. to Coachella. Mm-hmm. It has to do with um, Sean Penn being cast as Harvey Milk. Mm-hmm. It has to do with... Scarlett Johansson and Scarlett Ghost Joe in the Shell. It has to do with Emma Stone. It has being cast as a half-Asian woman in that damn... 
that Hawaiian movie that movie. had to do with yeah. pilots. Yeah. It um it has to do with um on Glee a a young man in a wheelchair being played by a an able-bodied, an able-bodied yeah. actor. The list goes on. And I think that ultimately what I think what you're trying to say Daniel is that in in art being produced that has that represents an experience and a story that is different than white straight cis that there be appropriate acknowledgement of and representation of that culture at mm. some level in that art and physical uh benefits like like fine you should not be benefiting off of another culture's story financially like that's that's my thought the other thing i want to say too is this conversation i'm not talking to the white woman who is constantly asked to sing summertime for a cabaret. Oh god. I'm not talking to them. Do I think that's inherently problematic? I do. But I I'm not I'm no, not sitting because, here going like you're a terrible thing. person. No, because, because like, you're not being you're being asked to do it. Sorry, go ahead. No, because that's the thing is in this world and in this industry, white women are asked to sing summertime. I have been asked to sing summertime and I have been paid to sing summertime and I've felt like shit about it. Yeah. And but you're just trying to make a buck. I'm like, just it's trying not, to pay my rent. Yeah. I am specifically saying that if you run the lyric and you're going to put on Otello and have it done by a white passing person. Or mm, or just a white person. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not going to go. The, no. Sorry. No, 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 no. Well, that's another episode, girl. Um, I was trying to be inclusive with that. Yeah. I, didn't, I wasn't specifically taking up a torch with white passing people. That's not what I meant to do. I just was trying to, like, I'm trying to be better about that. And, you know, white straight men fuck up everything. And so that's what I'm doing right yeah. now. Um, anyway, I want to I wanna do, I both want to do final thoughts and give you guys plugging time. So, well, I, 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 yeah, I think that you guys should have. That's what I meant, final yeah, thoughts. Yeah. I, my, my kind of final thought is. What's done is sort of done, right? And I don't think we should throw it out. And that's just my bias because I really Verdi and Puccini are two of my favorite composers, and I would hate to see those things lost. But I do think they should be done with sensitivity and appropriate dramaturgy and representation in the casting. Now, going forward, if you're a white person and you feel compelled to tell someone's story, don't tell tell what you know and. Make sure there's representation in your work, right? And make sure if you're if it's something castable, it's castable. But use your privilege, because I'm going to tell you, there's going to be someone out there. There's going to be a Japanese person who can tell a Japanese story. There's going to be tell a Latinx person. There's going to be a gay person. There's going to be use your privilege to lift those people up and help those stories get told by those people. And that is what that's a good use of your privilege, and that's a good way to tell those stories. I actually have like. I'm going to compound, I'm going to, like... Okay, yeah. Uh, with, with that, I think that there is a place... Let's say you are a white... Let's say you are anyone who has any kind of privilege. Sure, yeah. And you identify that someone who does not have your same privilege, whether that be financial, whether that be racial, whether that be whatever, or, like, notoriety. Let's just say that you have nor more notoriety than a person who has an amazing story to yes. tell. You have, you have two options. You can either co-opt their story 
and tell it yourself. Or you can fucking collaborate with that person. Well, yeah. By all means. Absolutely. So if you are a white straight person and there is anyone else who has an amazing story, don't just be like, you know what? I'm going to take your story and I'm going to write it and I'm going to put it out there and then I'm going to drag you on stage with me and be like, it was their idea. No, fucking sit in a room with them, occupy space with them and write it together or help produce it or something like don't assume that your voice, if it can only be your voice right. writing this thing, yeah, help help lift up other voices. It comes down to allyship and yeah. good allyship. Uh, it, it kind of is, yeah, yeah. And I think we've talked a lot today about the fact that we need to make sure we at least try to actively cast people of color in their respective roles, like casting Asians and Madam Butterfly and such. But I also think it's important to remember to cast people of color in nondescript roles. Oh, oh God, yes. Absolutely. (laughs) And I'm I'm just going to tell a a what-the-fuck story. I love telling what-the-fuck stories because, as Viola Davis says, like, you think that issues of race and being a person of color is, like, this new post-45 thing it's every day of my life for me. Right. And, like, people forget that, like, these are occurrences that I have often. It's just that you don't have them, so you don't think they're happening. So my friend, who is Asian, she's Korean, she sang Liu in Turn Dot, and uh, it was opening night. She did a phenomenal job, and we're all at the cast party having our drinks. Everybody's had too much to drink, and mouths are moving. Hmm. And, and the empresario comes up to the group of young artists that I'm standing with, and we say, oh, my God, wasn't she such a wonderful you? She's such a beautiful voice. He said, yeah, it's too bad she's Asian. That's all she's ever going to be able to sing. And we were like, oh, that's interesting, because, you know, next season you guys are doing Rigoletto. She's sung Gilda a couple times in some pretty respectable houses. And he's like, yeah, we're not going to hire her for Gilda. She doesn't look like a Gilda. But you know what? Maybe one day we'll hire her to sing Butterfly. I was like, oh, okay. Okay, so we can't see her as anything other than Asian, even when the role is a nondescript, just soprano. We don't know her color or anything. So that's my story. Just remember that we also need to cast oh, people of color. Absolutely. That's a no, separate, incredibly yes. important conversation to have. A separate, incredibly different conversation. But important, important, I, I mean, related, very yes. related conversation yes, very to have. Much. And you guys actually touched on it a little, well, you weren't there, right? Were you in the in the Boheme group of men? No, no, talk, no, no, no. Okay. Um, yeah, you guys talk, talked about it a little bit. We also talked about it with Jesse Oliver, too, about, um, like, representation of bodies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, body yes, diver- that's right. Body diversity is huge, you know, and I think that, like, and my what the fuck story is being double cast in a role where my counterpart was smaller than I was, and of the six performances, she was given four and I was given two. Mm. Equally prepared, equally vocally, equally vocally able. Yeah equally nuanced and lovely performances and she was given four performances and I was given two for the sole reason that she looked more like that role than I did which is fucked up and I think that and I think that all all people whether they be non-white whether they be fat 
you know, whether they be extraordinarily thin, you know, no matter what, every, everyone should be given a voice. Everyone should be given an opportunity because right. there's so much talent out there, whether it come from a large body, whether it come from a non-white body, and whether it come from a traditionally thin white body. I think sure. that everybody has a voice, everybody has a story to tell, and all of these stories should be told by everybody. Sure. Yeah. Okay, I have three more things. They're going to be really quick. They're just yeah. going to be like, think Same about way. this when the show is over. Okay, so number one is, if we're if we're thinking of appropriation versus exoticism, but in... Um, in modern context or like non-music context, it I, I saw a lot of um, articles that were like, is it appreciation or appropriation? Which mm-hmm. I kind of feel like that's the same conversation. Is it exoticism or yeah. appropriation? Yeah, yeah. So the first one is, how do you feel about scholars who are like PhDs in a culture that isn't theirs? Right. Is that appropriation or appreciation? Second one. Um, when you, let's say you go to a wedding, uh, a Hindi, a Hindu wedding where the women are mm-hmm. expected to wear a sari, when you wear that to that wedding, is that appropriation or appreciation? Because you're doing what's respectfully acknowledged by yes. the culture as a, a traditional thing that you would do. Third, so we talk about Puccini appropriating other cult- minority cultures. What happens when he appropriates a, ma- a majority culture? What happens when it's Fanchula? And he is appropriating American culture. Can you I'll raise you Native American culture because he appropriates it heavily in that. Sure, sure. Yeah. I also think it, uh, all three of those questions for me come down to power struggle. So about yeah. professors, professorial stuff. If you're a black studies, white black studies professor, fuck you. Rachel Dolezal. Yeah, fuck <laughs> you. And, <laughs> yeah, and I think it comes down to power struggle. I think the that it's less of a, a less of a social justice crime if that's even a thing. If um. If you're talking about majority versus minority. Is Eminem a cultural appropriator? Because technically, I mean, not here we're talking about like, hey, the from Michigan kind of thing. And Jake has all kinds of opinions because he's, he is a white man who was raised in privilege, but chose to go to a school in um, a less, a less wealthy neighborhood so that he could like yeah. experience life. And his friends are black and he grew up in black culture as a white man and so whenever he wears clothes that are indicative of black culture it's like oh is that appropriation and we have that conversation all the time mm. and it's really interesting. It, yeah. it, it's interesting to have those conversations but anyway i'll wrap up because i know we've been talking for a really yeah long we're a little time. over but i think it's the thing i just do want to say is i think it i don't really his, give a shit if we're over quite frankly yeah no we're this i'm really happy with this conversation. <laughs> This is a valuable conversation to be having and people can say that if they're upset if i think he doesn't have the same financial privilege that most white people do. Sure. But I think that his success is partly fed by the fact that he is white. Sure. He has been more accepted into the mainstream. Oh, God, we culture. have such an issue. We don't have time to talk about Miley Cyrus, but we could. Well, and that brings up... Fuck a, Miley Cyrus. I'm sorry that I cut you off. No, no please go. Um, that also brings up a, an interesting, like, reverse representation thing where... Um, Eminem was successful as a rapper because white boys who like to listen to rap wanted to see someone like them uh, rap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. that's like, it's a classic case of like representation matters, but the other way around. Yeah, no, and you're I, totally right. And I will say that I think Eminem did white hip hop well. I think that there are white rappers that don't do it well. And I think that he represented a population that wasn't really represented in in mainstream music, which is low-income 
urban white people. Sure. And I think that there are pockets of the population that, like, I think that he came out of a very specific culture of, like, lower income white people living near a major city Mm -hmm. where, like, country music didn't really fit them like it's not like their experience was like yeah we're poor but we're happy because we have our trucks and we have our (laughs) cowboy boots and Uh. like i i think that that doesn't that didn't really speak to their experiences but being low income and white in a major urban area like they were exposed to hip-hop culture and it was a big part of that life Mm -hmm. and so i think that in that case he was representing a very specific voice mm-hmm. that and it blew up. Yeah, so here's what I will say. As an avid hip hop fan, uh, I think avid. that, <laughs> that avid. I think Sorry. that you can say Eminem was a great rapper, but if you're gonna make the case that Eminem was the greatest rapper of all time. Oh no. What? <laughs> that is Ooh. A sus and B like you'd better that? Sorry. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm getting no. I'm I'm just like furious that people say that. Sorry, please continue. No, the people say it, and the thing is, and and B, you'd better have some in-depth lyrical analysis happening and like mm-hmm. word counts and shit, because like, hip hop is poetry is amazing and rich and it's interesting. And mm-hmm. anyway, I have um, one plug. Yeah. So, there's a great book by Debbie Irving, who is this upper-middle-class waspy woman who was an arts administrator for many years and didn't understand why her attempts to bring black kids downtown and show them the opera wasn't working. Um, It's called Waking Up White by Debbie Irving. And I think it's a really good... It's a recommended read for me to other people who are interested in... And that getting really interesting. Yeah, it's especially for people who are an arts admin who are like, why isn't this working? Why aren't we getting new audiences? And she has a great perspective on that. It's cool. like my new stock phrase that sharing opera outreach isn't just bringing a, a white lady to sing Tosca to brown people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm fighting off a cough, but no, no, I believe in it. <laughs> hmm. Cool. Um, Josh? Plug? Yeah. Plug uh, Rooney? Uh, I don't really have a plug. But New Brew. We're yeah, all well, singing we're gonna opera be, on tap tomorrow. We're all singing opera on tap. No, that this is coming out this on will be, oh, Wednesday. That'll be in the past. Last night. Oh plug, my god, wasn't opera on tap great I'm last sure it was. Oh my god, I don't believe that Daniel memorized that music so quickly. Do you remember that crazy Jesus. thing that happened? Do you remember that, that crazy thing? Nondescript yeah. thing. Oh yes. god. Remember when that brilliant hot doctor proposed to Josh? I remember that. I remember that. Josh, I'm so happy. I'm you. so happy for me too. And you're all living in a world, the audience, I mean, where I'm no longer an opera on tap administrator. That's true. Aww. Yeah. Aww. I'm, R.I.P. Yeah. R.I.P. Three years. And Three now Daniel's dead. Years. It dead. lasted longer than a Kardashian marriage. True. That's that's true. That's really impressive. You know. All right. Cool. But well, yeah. But but my but new brew is a thing. But you're gonna listen to the episode because we're gonna be on soon. And then you hear more about our concert that's happening very soon. Cool. Yeah, you're either going to hear that Thursday evening or Friday morning. Perfect. Depending on if our, the rest of our episode, like, depending on if we get one specific episode taped this week. And then our concert's May 16th at the Alba Room. Yeah. Double plug. Cool. 
All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. I've been Dan Johansson. I continue to be Maureen Smith. And I'm a spooky ghost. (laughs) I almost forgot. I'm so sorry. I'm so used to just like tearing through it. We have the recurring bit. I don't know if you've heard the silly bit of things that Josh are. I liked the trash trash cans. Yes, that one was my favorite. (laughs) Nailed it. Nailed it. All right, cool. Well, if you like what we're up to, there are so many ways that you can keep up with us. You can head over to scopymag.com. That's our website. We've got articles there, newish ones. Um, the most recent being a uh, breakdancing coverage. Uh, you can also see a list of episodes there, podcast episodes. Uh, and there's a lot of cool stuff there. Just check it out sometime. Um, you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Facebook is Scopy Magazine. You can see all kinds of posts. We post random shit. Um, and then on Instagram and Twitter at Scopy Mag. And as always, I'm here to emphasize the importance of donations. Uh, we run on a shoestring budget, which is terrifying because we are putting up a whole slew of concerts this summer. Um, if you would like to help us um, get that off the ground, then you should do so with your debit card (laughs) Um, head to scopymag.com go to our about section um you can either do a one-time donation which ms lily guerrero was so kind i donated a thousand dollars a thousand dollars lily paid our rent for a month just so we could do this no she she did give and it was lovely and wonderful and you can give too you can either become a monthly subscriber in which case you get admission to any productions that we do in our apartment um and also we'll probably figure out some food thing because we like food yeah food thing food thing um if you do a one-time donation then we will uh send you a handwritten thank you note if you give us your home address um yeah as long as that's not a terrifying prospect to you Mm -hmm. um so yeah give a little give a lot and if you can't give then listen participate and share Mm -hmm. thanks again so much for listening thanks for putting us up with us going long Go out and make something. Go out and haunt something.